Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French. We are talking about, of course, Afghanistan and the president's latest comments on the end of the war. We will also talk about the Supreme Court, brewing rhetoric of violence on the right, and the 2022 retirements on the GOP Senate side. president's, well, several hour late uh, speech yesterday. What are we talking about today? Yeah. So this, I'm going to go right back to you on this, Sarah, to start. Uh, President Biden gave a a speech talking about the uh, Afghanistan withdrawal, everything that we've seen over the past several weeks, the policy going back 20 years. And he did so in kind of a defiant way, saying the policy is right. the, The execution was sloppy. Uh, but I'm this needed to be done, and I'm glad I had the fortitude to do it. Um, it was, in my view, a little awkward once again because Biden was at once using this speech to celebrate the courage of his own decision and at the same time cast blame on all those uh, others who made contributions to the decision, the people he blamed for. This moment, the Afghan government, Afghan national security forces, Donald Trump, um, were you, you've, I think, fair to say you've been most sympathetic to the case for withdrawing generally. Um, Lots of people who are Biden supporters or not Biden supporters, but sympathetic to the case for withdrawing. Uh, seemed to rally around the speech and thought it was a good speech, uh, thought Biden made his case well. Are you among them? No, because I think that actually, uh, you know, we have disagreed on some of the policy aspects of this. But I think from a communication standpoint, there is almost nothing redeemable about what the Biden administration has tried to do from a communication standpoint. Um mistake after mistake after mistake. Now, look, there's the obvious ones of Biden coming out and saying things that were either demonstrably not true or a month later proved totally untrue. That I think people are chalking up as like, well, it was a mistake, but he believed it at the time, et cetera. I think that misses the point entirely. Let me tell you what the correct comm strategy, in my opinion, at least, would have been. It's to go out and say and repeat yesterday and repeat over and over again for the last three weeks. Here were our choices. Our choices were not the status quo. That was not an option. So I could move 10,000 more Marines into Afghanistan. My experts estimated that we would sustain X number of casualties and Y number of KIA, or we could withdraw entirely. Now, on the withdrawal, here were the choices. We could try to withdraw slowly, but the problems that we spotted were these. I mean, walk the American people through the hard decision that you had to make instead of sounding so defensive about it. The American people are very smart. They understand a lot of this stuff, and they certainly understand someone facing a hard decision and making the best one they can with the information that they have. But instead, again, just from a communications perspective, you have Biden so defensive as to sound guilty, right? If this guy were on the witness stand in a criminal defense, like his lawyer would pull him off. That is terrible. And he's not even under cross-examination because he's not taking questions at any of these things. So uh, politically, and I've, I've said this before, obviously, it's not that I think that people are voting on the foreign policy aspects of this. I'm, I'll be interested to see if I'm proved wrong, California recall or otherwise. Um, but I think there are domestic policy implications. I've talked about the one, the Vietnam-esque one, where you just become more cynical in your government, et cetera. But what I haven't talked about is the Joe Biden-specific domestic implications, which is uh, the creation of a new narrative around him. You, You had the Republican Party really using foils for the Democrats, whether it's defund the police or AOC or uh, Elon Omar or Cori Bush, um, constantly trying to paint the Democrats as their most extreme version because they didn't want to pick a fight with Joe Biden, who was pretty popular. And 
wasn't really saying anything too crazy. He was against defund the police, et cetera. What this has created is a narrative around Joe Biden uh, of incompetence, defensiveness, and it feeds the already existing narrative in the GOP base that he's not up to the job, uh, which I say with like sort of that asterisk, um, the, the, certainly the words they would use are senile, too old. Um, he's, he's not remembering stuff, et, et cetera. Uh, I think this feeds some of that. The overly emotional and defensive response is a bad, bad look under like four different prongs. So that's my answer. So Jonah, there was a Reuters story uh, published Tuesday afternoon uh, in which the reporters got their hands on a, a transcript of a call on July 23rd between President Biden and Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan. Um, they also got their hands on a second call that took place later in the day between Ghani and uh, some top Biden administration national security officials. And Sarah talks about the narrative around Joe Biden. What was striking I think both to the reporters and certainly to, to, to me about the, the transcripts of the call, the way that they wrote those transcripts up, was how concerned Joe Biden was about the narrative. He went back repeatedly to this question of perceptions. And he told Ashraf Ghani, uh, this is, you know, just a couple of weeks before we saw the, the Taliban's march accelerate, um, that Ashraf Ghani had to do something to change the narrative. The narrative was bad. The narrative suggests that the Taliban were on the march. The narrative suggests that uh, the Afghan government was weak. And Biden proposed a big press conference with former President Hamid Karzai and had lots of advice in this 15-minute call focused on perceptions. I guess, given what we've seen since, uh, how misplaced was that focus at the time? The problem, it seems to me, was not perceptions. The problem was reality. And Biden promised to, to continue to provide close-in air support, uh, suggested that the Afghan military was, would vastly outnumber the, the 70 to 80,000 Taliban fighters he allowed existed in the country. Why was Joe Biden so focused on narrative in Afghanistan in late July? Well, I suspect, not not being able to read his mind, but, but I suspect it's because he was so confident that his position was right that if the perception was going south, it was because it was of because of bad framing and a bad narrative that didn't reflect reality, rather than the fact that he couldn't countenance the possibility that maybe the reality itself was different than he thought it was, and the reporting and the perceptions reflected the truth. Um, you know, Biden, Biden, we forget because he, 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 until this episode, Biden had kind of lost this very angry edge that he sometimes had when he was a younger guy. Um, and he really had a very thin skin about his intellect, about his qualifications. There was this amazing video going back, I don't know, 30, 40 years where he just rips into some guy giving him a hard time on the campaign trail about how he graduated first in his class. He was the first person to do this, the first person to do that. They were all just factually untrue. And, um, and I think that he has a ca capacity. He, he, he thinks very highly of himself. He's got a major insecurity problem, very similar in some ways, very different in others, to Donald Trump's, I think. And this thing, which he has been obsessed with so, so, for so very, very long, um, according to some reports, you know, going back to the Obama administration where he was on the losing side of some arguments, I think he, he fixated on doing this and, and, and he's kind of turned a little bit like into Colonel Nicholson from Bridge on a River Kwai, where he got so fixated on doing it, he lost sight of the problems with doing it and lost the ability to respond in time to it. And you see that in his, I mean, I think agree entirely with Sarah, the speech just, regardless of the merits just came across as very defensive. He clearly people are in his head. Um, he is doing something that Obama did a lot of, which is responding to these to straw man versions of criticisms of him in ways that are, I, I would say 
if he wasn't so angry, would be marks of bad faith. I mean, that's what they bothered me when Obama did it, because you could tell he was deliberately distorting what his opponents were saying for rhetorical effect. I think Biden was just spitting mad and embarrassed and on the defensive and in a corner. And, um, um, and so, you know, there's, a, there's this old rule. I remember the, I, I, it's a weird reference for this conversation, but, um, the writers for Saturday Night Live, the writers and producers would often say that the people who would get angriest at them, um, among politicians were Democrats because there is this unspoken assumption among Democratic politicians that the media is supposed to do cleanup work for them. It's supposed to be a wind at their back, not, you know, in their face. And when it doesn't behave that way, which I think I have to say, the mainstream media has been pretty responsible in how it's covered all of this. Um, it creates this particular anger for Democrats that, that Republicans don't have because Republicans always expect to get bad press. And um, they can, they're used to being made fun of. And Democrats feel like they've been betrayed. And you just got a sense that this, this old guy who had this idea that he was sure he was right about for 10 years, um, it was bitter and angry that so far it looks like he was proven wrong about an enormous number of things, including things that within his own speech yesterday. I mean, he talked about how we only have to have, we have to have a clear and achievable foreign policy. Two weeks ago, he set the clear and achievable foreign policy of getting every single American out. And then yesterday, he's talking about, well, 90% is pretty good. Um, throw me a parade. I mean, that kind of thing, at some part in his head, he's got to be thinking, gosh, this is lame. I'm having to make this argument. And he's embarrassed about it. David, I think Sarah's right that the Biden White House hopes that the speech yesterday was the beginning of a new focus on Afghanistan, or as the case may be, less focus on Afghanistan, uh, and that people will forget the botched withdrawal and all of the, the many complications that we've seen over the past several weeks, and I would say betrayals, um, and that, that folks will eventually get to the point where they just remember that Joe Biden is the one who ended the war in Afghanistan. Unfortunately for the White House, there are consequences from what we saw over the past several weeks that are likely to live well beyond this actual decision moment. I'm thinking here of our relations with U.S. allies. There was a report in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday talking about uh, report uh, talking about relations with our European allies, and the, the journal reported the strains are already real, especially after Mr. Biden rebuffed European requests to extend the August 31st withdrawal deadline so that allies would be able to airlift their remaining citizens and Afghan allies out of Kabul. Tens of thousands of such people eligible for evacuation remain stranded. And the second question, we've talked about this, this before, but I think it's worth dwelling on for a moment, is our loss of intelligence capabilities there. There's a, a second Wall Street Journal, different Wall Street Journal article, um, in which they report U.S. officials acknowledge the military has lost 90% of the intelligence collection capabilities it had using drones before the drawdown of forces began in May. How much are we going to continue to have to pay attention to Afghanistan because of uh, facts like this? Uh, well, you know, I think there's a, a, a few things to unpack there. One is how much do we have to pay attention to Afghanistan? Uh, we don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to it from a media standpoint. The longer we move and the, the, the distance we move from this event, in part because it's going to be hard to report from there. I mean, how are we going to know what's happening to women and girls in Kandahar? I mean, are, is there going to be a viable media presence there? What are we going to know about what's happening in various uh, parts of Kabul? How are we going to know any of this? This is going to be one of the most dangerous, fraught media assignments in the world. In a lot of ways, the reality is Afghanistan is kind of going to start to go dark to us. It's going to start to become even more opaque to us. And one of the things that happens is then it often goes out of, out of sight, out of mind, right? Unless something 
horrible and dreadful happens. And we don't know if that's going to occur, especially in the world of international terror. We don't know when that's going to occur in the world of international terror. So I do think there is something just from this sort of, if you're going to take a mercenary media cycle approach to it, this will fade in part in memory of the public because of, quite frankly, after a while, it's going to be hard to report from there. There's not going to be as much to report. Uh, another account of atrocities, et cetera. So I do think that there, there as just as a practical matter, it might fade unless and until something really big and bad happens. I mean, more bad <laughs> happens, more uh, bigger happens. And and so I think that that's just a, the sort of the brass tacks reality of it. Now, the allies piece of this, to me, there is something here that I think a lot of people don't get that is what makes this so infuriating to the allies. And that is the way we have constructed our alliance, but all of our allies, including our most powerful allies, the Great, uh, Great Britain, France, they do not have the heavy lift and force projection ability that we have. They don't have that same ability. And so what does that mean? They are dependent upon our heavy lift capacity to move lots of people from A to B in a short amount of time. doesn't mean they have no capacity. They, of course they do, but they do not have our capacity. And so we are built from the ground up to be interdependent. They are interdependent and dependent upon us. And so it isn't like Britain has the force projection capability in the same way that we do to then land, say, Royal Marines at the airport, even if we leave and have total confidence that it's got the infrastructure to protect them in the way that we have. And so they are dependent on us, and this is yanking the rug out from under them. It's not quite the same as saying, well, France, if you want to stay, you can stay, or, or Britain, if you want to stay, you can stay, because they literally are not built to stay in the same way that we are. So that's why it's not just our partner left, it's the people the it's the partner that allowed us to be there to rescue the people we wanted to rescue and that is a bitter pill to swallow and you know all of this is reminding me why i'm going i'm having these flashbacks to 2008 to 2016 and it's reminding me why between of the obama obama biden pair i preferred obama to biden and you know, there was always this aspect of Biden that was kind of puzzling to me as an outsider. It was a lot of people in Washington seemed to have a lot of affection for him. And, and Mitch McConnell famously, remember, choked up when he left the Senate uh, at the end of Obama's second term. And, and when he, you know, he was as vice president, he presided over the Senate and he was leaving and, and McConnell just famously choked up. And I remember being mystified that as imperious as Obama could be, and he could be pretty imperious. Uh, almost nobody uh, could rival Biden for his sneering condescension. Um, and it was this weird kind of sneering condescension because it was paired with no readily apparent titanic intellectual ability. And, and sort of the, the, the paradigm of that was the, the debate with Paul Ryan, the vice presidential debate with Paul Ryan. And I think that you, what we saw was um, the reminder over the last couple of weeks that, yup, it was Joe Biden who became president of the United States. It's the guy that we've always known. And the guy that we've always known has always had these particular weaknesses. And these particular weaknesses have been highlighted and amplified um, in the last couple of weeks. And I think that a lot of people will remember. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I'll just make one final point on on that issue and sort of more broadly the, the likelihood that we're going to continue to pay attention to this. I do think the fact that that Biden administration officials, including the president himself, have said so many things that are so at odds with reality, journalists will not be able to help themselves but to call attention to that. I mean, you have Ned Price, the State Department spokesman yesterday, once again, issuing a strongly worded statement insisting that the Taliban respect the basic human rights of people in Afghanistan. Literally, as that statement goes out, they're, they're engaged in targeted killings. They're keeping women from going to work. They're abusing their critics. I mean, 
there's no world in which the Taliban is going to do what the Biden administration keeps suggesting it might. And I, th- I think, you know, my, my concern about that primarily is the, the long-term national security implications of that misjudgment and miscalculation. But there will be many others. Um, and I think it'll be apparent on a daily basis just how badly they misjudged uh, the Taliban. All right, David, you want to talk about some rhetoric on the right? Yeah, so, um, okay, well, let, let me let me start by triggering Sarah, um, because I'm going to say the name Madison Cawthorn. Uh, no. and, she, and Sarah's already shaking her head. She's Beat already shaking out. her head. So anyway, <laughs> and so Madison Cawthorn starts a little Twitter tempest, um, but by saying, you know, and I'll, I'll just read part of it. If our election, if our election systems continue to be rigged, continue to be stolen, then it's going to lead to one place and that's bloodshed. And I will tell you as much as I'm willing to defend our liberty at all costs, there is nothing that I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. So again, you know, this pretty clear statement of, you know, bloody intent from Madison Cawthorn. Okay, big deal backbencher. Everybody knows he is crazy. Um, who should pay attention to him? But then you're also having this other thing that is popping up that is a continuation of a lot of the pre-January 6th behavior. And that is threats towards public officials. There's an escalating threat environment now for school board officials. Every, it seems like every day you see a new video of threatened violence threats to kill people at school board meetings who are for masks. Um, You have this rising sort of rhetoric on the right that is casting January 6th uh, defendants as political prisoners that J.D. Vance tweeted approvingly. That's been sort of a theme that you've heard uh, from Tucker Carlson as he's been questioning a lot of the January 6th prosecutions. And so uh, let me, since I went ahead and triggered Sarah, let's start with Sarah. Are you worried? Oh, and also there was a crazy guy who went to the Capitol, claimed he had a bomb, appears to have been non-functioning, thankfully, um, had a standoff with the police outside of the spring, of the Library of Congress, if I'm not wrong. Um, so anyway, Sarah, worried? Not worried? I want to distinguish what you're talking about from domestic terrorism, though I think that the line uh, is not black and white always. Um, But the rise of actual domestic terrorism in this country is something I am worried about. Um, The rise of people on the right, both sort of these elected backbenchers trying to get attention and their voters, I think that's a uh, special symbiotic relationship and each is causing the other. Right. There's this idea, I think, on like the lefty Twitter verse that Fox News causes this. And instead, I could, I think, make a far more persuasive argument that this is causing Fox News the other way around. Um, So is Madison Cawthorn, whose goal here is just to get attention, is he saying stuff like that um, to gin up the base? Or is he saying stuff like that because he knows that's what his base wants to hear right now? I think it's deeply concerning that that's what the base wants to hear. And Five years ago, I would have told you that it was an infinitesimal percentage of people in the country and they were getting outsized attention from the media. Um, I no longer think that. However, I do think they get outsized attention. It's just, you know, maybe not magnifying 1% to much, much bigger. It's, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a lot larger than I want it to be. Uh, that being said, am I worried that that itself will lead to specific violence? Not the way it is right now, but it's a whole lot of kindling out there. And David, you wrote a whole book about potential matches and what that would lead to really quickly. Uh, and so that's the concern is that you just have a whole lot of dry leaves sitting around, very both bored angry, looking for, looking to burn. But Madison Cawthorn isn't going to do it. (laughs) Madison Cawthorn is not going to lead the violent revolution, you're saying? No, he's he's not (laughs) leading anything. 
Lead is not a word that I would I use know. to describe. He is Madison Cawthorn, truly. And like, I don't even think you have to like make many distinctions. Uh, Madison Cawthorn, Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. They have their exact equivalents on the left. Elon Omar, Cory Bush, AOC. These people have outsized media attention compared to their political power, which is zero, except for the media attention, which drives their political power, which I find so frustrating, which is why I did not want his name mentioned on this podcast. The end. Okay, so I'll just note for the record that Sarah talked about all of those people more than I did in the question. <laughs> um, now, moving, moving over to you, Jonah, you have said, I think, quite eloquently and correctly that on top of the political, there is an underlying degree of tension in this country. Uh, and you see it in the escalating attacks on flight attendants, for example, road rage, et, et cetera. And I guess my question is, is this just that? Or is this that plus? In other words, is this a kind of, is this just politics reflecting an increased background tension? Or is this maybe politics driving and enhancing uh, a background uh, level of increased tension? In other words, I guess what I'm trying to ask, is this something that's going to fade the more we come out of a pandemic, hopefully, and life starts to return more to normal, which it sadly keeps not happening? Um, or is this something that is a, an ominous turn that could endure past this moment of tension? Um. I think it's pluses all the way down. Um, I think that, I mean, look, I mean, we saw a lot of this stuff bubbling up long before anyone had heard of COVID-19. Um, you know, the stuff that you and I were subjected to um, with the sort of the social media stuff in 2015 and 2016, um, that wasn't pandemic induced. That was pre-pandemic. And um and I think that, you know, I mean, so, I mean, I hate the perfect storm analogy, but, um, I think that Twitter and social media has broken a lot of people's brains, um, for all sorts of ways, in all sorts of ways. I think Trumpism, both among his opponents and among his biggest fans has has done a lot, has done a number on a, on a number of people. We'll just put it that way. And, and then so you already have all of this, these, these, you know, what was the Russian writer who called it, you know, fires that, uh, fires that lit the line, the minds of men. And you have all of this stuff already going on and then you have a pandemic and our brains get even weirder. Um, and our responses to weird stuff becomes all the more weird, you know, that sort of cat catalytic thing. I always quote from Orwell where he says a man can feel himself a failure and take to drink and become all the more of a failure because he drinks all of these things in combination become a cocktail. And I think, um, you just see it all over the place. Um, and the problem is, um, you know, I, at least they used to say that the number of people who are driven to violence by violence in movies and television was something like one in 10,000 or one in a hundred thousand. Let's just assume those numbers are the same for all of this nonsense. Um, in a country of 330 million people, that's enough people to do real bad things. Um, you know, and you've written a lot about the contagion factor with mass shooters. Um, they're very, very, very few people. I mean, you know, the percentages better than I do uh, of people who own guns who want to become spree killers. But if it's, if you have a million, if you have 10 million people owning guns and we have more than that and, and 0.001% of them decide to become spree killers, you've got a massive epidemic of mass shootings on your hands. And so the numbers, the scale is, is something I think to worry about. I also think that there's a, there's a general problem. I, I, I agree with Sarah's general point that the, the, the business model for people like Cawthorn and, and, and Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene is the same as that for AOC and those kinds of people. But the 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 squad types i have to say are having more success affecting policy and when when we say that they have no power 
if they're the leading fundraisers and they can get money for other politicians, they can leverage their power. MTG but is raising it. why are they their- leading fundraisers? Why do they have that power? It's all feeding, it's a little cycle feeding itself. I agree, but my point is, is that we have all sorts of, we, have, we live in an era illuminated by a disco ball of asininity. And uh, everything is reflecting <laughs> off of everything else. And the mere fact, I, I agree with you entirely. The reason why these people have this power is because the media gives them this power, but the media gives them this power, so therefore they have this power. And um, we can lament it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's, that it's going on. And, um, and I should just say that the, the things that, that AOC's base or Elon Omar's base want to hear are different substantively from the things that MTG's people want to hear. And, um, and then I also just think, I don't know about Elon Omar. I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not as smart as she thinks she is, but I think she's pretty savvy and smart. I think that we should not forget that Madison Cawthorn is probably a complete moron. And, um, (laughs) it factors into a lot of the things that he says that he thinks are smart, that he thinks are sophisticated, that he thinks he's taking this philosophically bold position and he doesn't even realize he's spewing boob bait. And I think part of the reason why we're getting this crop of, of Cawthorns and Boberts and, and greens is that institutionally the conservative movement and the Republican party have completely abdicated their role as screeners and filters and gatekeepers. And basically they hand the keys to the car to the loudest drunks they can find. And, um, that's a real problem. I see it in conservative media every day. I'm kind of obsessed with it. Um, and so I just think that at some point it's a numbers game. We're going to have something really terrible happen. And then a bunch of people who should be the ones condemning it are going to validate it, much like they did with January 6th. That sends a signal that, oh, this kind of behavior is okay, wink, wink. And then someone goes even further. And so I do think we're going to get violence. And I think that the, even though it's not the intent of many of these Republicans and conservative leaders uh, have, to have violence, I'm sure it's not, they are, they are greasing the skids for it. Hey, Steve, close your ears real quick. Did anyone else think boob bait, like for their first initial reaction, meant something else? Because I definitely was somewhere else on the boob bait and was very confused how Madison Cawthorn was boob bait and hadn't. <laughs> but I get it now. It took me a second. <laughs> it's an old Daniel Patrick Moynihan. <laughs> yeah, phrase. yeah, no, you but know, it's 2021. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. we're <laughs> hey, you know, some of us are not afraid to share the benefits of our years of wisdom and, and experience. Um, anyway, go on. So, Steve, one of the more compelling things that I've heard uh, is I I was talking, and this is something that sort of bubbled up in the discourse, is what would you think if you were hearing reports about the United States, and but it was another country? In other words, you were tracking what was going on in, say, Spain, and you had had uh, the Spanish parliament uh, overrun. You had you were seeing calls for violence echoing in in small towns across Spain. You had seen uh, plots in and other disrupted events uh, to kidnap or assassinate people. What would you be thinking? You would be thinking, and the answer is pretty darn obvious that this place has some inherent instability to it, and that it, it's as we were talking earlier, kindling and. And I, I'll just share, and, and I'll, I'll end with the same question I asked Sarah. I'll, I'll share sort of where I am on this. Uh, and I remember, uh, I can't remember if it's this podcast or maybe when I uh, was filling in for Jonah on the Remnant, talked about a concept of uh, somebody goes bankrupt slowly and then suddenly. Or an army can collapse slowly, then suddenly. And I think a a culture reaches a crisis often slowly and then suddenly. And that's what I'm worried about. Um, Steve, how how worried are you? Are you worried? Very. I I think political violence on a much larger scale than we've seen is inevitable. I don't think it's a question of whether it will happen. I think it's a question of when it will happen and where we are on that continuum. I mean, I think we're closer to the suddenly than than anybody should be comfortable with. And I think, well... First, a point on, on leadership, then I'll address Sarah's point, because I think there's an interesting sort of intra, I mean, you know, we are the media, so we can 
talk about how we're handling this. But I think one of the fundamental problems is, you know, Madison Cawthorn is a backbencher from North Carolina. Marjorie Taylor Greene is, you know, a, a, a kook from, from Georgia. Um, you have a number of these people. They obviously have developed the, the, the power that they have, and I do think they have power, because of the media attention that they're given. But there's another element here. I'll get to the media attention uh, question in a second. There's another element here that really, really matters. And it is the total collapse of leadership on the right, particularly among elected officials, to police this stuff. You know, not only is Kevin McCarthy not speaking out against the idiocy that is Madison Cawthorn, in many ways, he's encouraging it. He's encouraging it either by just looking the other way and shrugging his shoulders, or he's encouraging it by refusing to, to step up when somebody like Paul Gosar, a representative from Arizona, does a full public embrace of this, whatever we want to call him, alt-right provocateur, white nationalist, hate spewer, Nick Fuentes. You know, McCarthy, we've contacted his office, I don't know, half a dozen times, more, to see if he will do the very minimum, which is to say, yeah, you know, I'd prefer it if my members didn't truck with bad white nationalist types. And he won't do that. You know, he'll, he'll go out of his way to lambast Liz Cheney anytime he has an opportunity. But he won't even take the basic steps of condemning the kinds of rhetoric, the kinds of behavior that will lead, I think, inevitably to violence. So I put this on Republican Party leaders. Um, they're, they're encouraging this in many ways, and I think they deserve the blame when it happens. Now, on the media, I mean, I'm, as we've, we've had this discussion just to bring sort of our, our listeners into the, the discussions we've had internally at the dispatch. We've had this discussion basically since the dispatch launched. There, there is a media model that gets attention, gets listeners, gets viewers, gets uh, clicks by focusing on every one of these moments. And I think there are many on the mainstream, in the mainstream media and on the left who do that. Every time Madison Cawthorn says anything, doesn't have to be this, which I think really was uh, worth some coverage. He can say anything and they will pay attention to it because they know it will rile up the left and the left can say, see, look at those idiot right wingers. And, and the same, Steve, the same thing prevails on the right. Is that it's also easy to talk about. Everyone can talk about being outraged. You don't need any expertise. It's very different than talking about Afghanistan and ISIS-K you don't need to and report. Al-Qaeda. Absolutely. No, 100%. That's 100%. And, and the, the reverse is true, right? This is, this is what happens on the right. You know, Rashida Tlaib says something outrageous, and it's wall-to-wall coverage on, on the right. You know, the way that we are approaching this is basically not to spend a ton of time covering these things. We don't. You know, we don't have many pieces about the squad. We don't have a ton of pieces about Madison Cawthorn or Marjorie Taylor Greene. When it comes up, we have exactly this kind of a conversation. How much does this actual issue deserve coverage because the issue deserves coverage versus how much are we just giving them additional attention that we don't want to so that we're contributing to the problem? And I think there's a reason that we sort of collectively have come to the the broad editorial judgment. We don't want to contribute to the problem. We don't spend a lot of time covering this. Having said that, it's really important to cover it some. You know, I, I would argue that a lot of what we saw in the lead up to the election of Donald Trump was this kind of agitation and provocation on the part of people like the Gateway Pundit and Breitbart and some of these these others. In some cases, just making stuff up, right? And it was allowed to go totally unchecked. Very few people paid much attention to it. And I think a lot of people, myself included, thought, ah, this is the fringe being the fringe. And it turns out actually that that's not the case, that this is more people than I'm comfortable with, I think more people than most of us are comfortable with, and that if you don't give people an alternative, if you don't tell them, no, hey, by the way, this is wrong, what these people are saying is wrong, um, people don't have any choice but but to 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 follow it. And I, you know, David had a, a terrific newsletter that we sent Tuesday evening. We've made it public for everybody to read and share, in which he goes on and on about you know people who fall for sort of one conspiracy after another after another after another and it takes you to this point and i think unfortunately it used to be the case that you had these people 
who followed these conspiracies sort of had a conspiracy mindset. They lived you know, in the proverbial basement. They didn't have a lot of people to, to socialize with. And now they have a lot of people to socialize with because the internet makes that, that easy. And you can create the misimpression, particularly if, if we don't ever cover this, we don't ever weigh in, that in fact, those people and those issues and that mindset is the, the sort of what, what most people believe. And that I think is really dangerous. Yeah. I mean, I, I think just it, it's worth emphasizing a point that kind of sounded like maybe you're glossing over. That's part of David's argument. And I agree it was a great newsletter. Um, is that this sort of thing is contagious. It's not just that, yeah, we've all, I mean, look, as someone who has been the subject of uh, hate storms from the sweet, the fever swamp, right? For 30 years, you know, I was somehow, you know, like guys at V-Dare started in the 90s calling National Review Goldberg's Review because I was there. Um, and uh, <laughs> and it was very much a put a put a Jewish Hebraic stink on Goldberg. Trust me. And um, the it's not subtle, actually. It, it, I know. But it was like when you actually read <laughs> it. Thanks for explaining. <laughs> but no, but when you actually read it, it, it kind of sounded you could almost hear it in a in a German accent. It was really strong. And, um, Goldberg's review. Anyway, um, <laughs> they, uh, the, there've always been fever swamps, you know, going back to uh, the, 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 the John Birch society and all that kind of stuff. But ideas are contagious, right? I mean, that's actually originally what, before memes became these cutesy things on Twitter and whatnot, this was a real study of sociology where m ideas spread memetically. And um, that's where we get the word meme from. And the, the, the number of people, which is, I think, a big part of what David's newsletter is about, is that a lot of these people were normals 10 years ago. And they're not anymore. And then this is, gets to my point about, I was saying before, about the gatekeeping. So much of the media now, particularly the conservative media infrastructure, with a few honorable you know, exceptions, um, spends a lot of its time highlighting the people who feed this stuff and minimizing the people who don't. If you look at, I mean, just to take a random example of this, if you look at the, the news stories that are linked on the homepage of Real Clear Politics these days, um, it is very rarely is it ever National Review um, or even the Wall Street Journal. Um, and it is almost, almost always there are you know, I, 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 you know, they also, there are sites that are now part of that infrastructure on there. You know, American greatness is probably linked to there 10 times as much as National Review is. And, um, and the message that that sends, because they then link to liberal columnists for the New York Times and the Washington Post and liberal pieces in the New Yorker and that kind of stuff. The, the sense that you get from that, it's a very small example, but it is that it's creating this equivalence that those, these are the, 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 the uh, climate makers, the influencers of the right, and these are the ones of the left, and they are both of equal stature. And it's a, a real false equivalence thing. And you find that kind of stuff all over the place. And so when you have people who aren't close students of the media and news and information and stuff, they see that their people, including their congressmen, validating crazy stuff. It makes that stuff uncrazy in their minds, you know? Um, and uh, that's why I love this video, the secret video of Ron Johnson, where he is, where he doesn't know he's being recorded and he's actually revealing that he's not insane. And he starts saying <laughs> things that, you know, he's a closet. It turns out he's a closet normal. And like Steve and I have talked about this for a long time about what happened to Ron Johnson. It turns out He's, there's still Ron Johnson in there. He's just not willing to be Ron Johnson in public. Um, and I think that's a fascinating part of the incentive structure we've got. And we're missing a really important part of why this has happened, which is ICRA, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which changed how all of this was funded. And y'all have heard various versions of this rant. I will do a longer version if anyone wants it at some future date. But the short version is... You get rid of large donors and large fundraising events that we used to have. And instead you have small dollar online fundraising, which means everything is fundraising. You know, from the Lego song, everything is awesome. This is everything is fundraising. <laughs> so Ron Johnson, everything he says has to meet with that online 
digital fundraising effort. And the people who are giving money online are not representative of voters writ large. Same as, by the way, the large dollar donors weren't representative either. I'm not actually pro that, qua that. Um, But uh, those people, very small percentage, and the thing that motivates them is fear and anger. And so what you're going to see more and more is that because it works. It's it. Yes, that whole media point is absolutely correct. But the reason that electeds are doing it is because it is working to both give them power and keep them in power and get them reelected and have them raise more money. And more money means they're more of a power broker. And you know who's not a power broker? The RNC. And even to a large extent now, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy. They don't control these folks because the party structure was kneecapped by Bikra. Okay, that's that is actually the short version of the rant. So two things real fast. We should start this where we say longer version of Sarah's rant on the bonus <laughs> Patreon episode. <laughs> um, no, no, Those are coming. Two, they won't be Patreon, um, but they're coming. The, number two is... Uh, in my newsletter, uh, I meant I created a sort of a fictionalized depiction of of a person. I called him Bill, who in 2010 was was handing out pocket constitutions, and 2021 is swallowing ivermectin by the gallon. And and you wouldn't believe my inbox today. Um, the number of people who said, "My uncle is Bill," "My dad is Bill," "My aunt is Bill," "My." Just these reports are flooding in. And, and you know, that's the thing that I have noticed in my own town. I mean, look, I'm in Williamson County, Tennessee. People who don't know Williamson County, Tennessee, that means nothing to you. Um, I moved there from a pretty rural county. It is one of the most prosperous, nice suburbs in America. I mean, it is, it's also very, 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 very Republican. And we went viral. President Biden mentioned us because people were threatened, nurses and doctors were threatened after testifying in support of masks in schools. Threatened. And it turns out then, of course, one of the people threatening was a former Christian rock star who I believe now does a Christian worship newsletter, was one of the people threatening these doctors. And it there is a difference in my community. There is a difference. Not to say that like there's still lots, tons and tons and tons of great people. And a lot of them are pulling away from all of this. But uh, amongst the people who are deeply engaged, there is a difference and it is ominous and it is contagious. Hey, you know how, uh, actually you listening do not know this. Sometimes before Jonah or Steve go on Brett Bear's show and there's like uh, winners and losers of the week, they'll sort of crowdsource and ask us who we think the winners and losers of the week are. You know who the real losers of this week are, Steve? It's the worms because everyone's now taking this dewormer and like, where are the poor worms supposed to go? <laughs> well, also, well, given aren't they the winners though? I mean, yeah, they'd be the winners, right? Because they, I mean, we're not going to have enough ivermectin in the horses. Right. <laughs> yeah. I know, but also it, it leaves out the fact that during a pandemic, we've been known to have toilet paper shortages and given the number one co- uh, result of taking horse dewormer, um, it's causing another run on, uh, exactly. Stockpile. David with heyday, Jonah with run on toilet paper. <laughs> we should probably just move on. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah 
Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We're only going to do three topics today, and we're going to finish with the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is big in the news today. Uh, The Texas abortion law has gone into effect at midnight central time. The Supreme Court did not issue a stay yet. They could at any point. Uh, But Jonah has something broader about the Supreme Court to talk about and how both sides are using the Supreme Court to flim flam around. Well, I mean, we can... um... We can bring in the abortion stuff because I'd like to hear you guys talk about that a little bit since that's more on the newsy side. But just very briefly, all right, so Sarah's rant about Bikra and all that is also my rant about weak institu- weak parties um, and how Mitch McConnell was right in 1990s when he said that McCain-Feingold was, wasn't was going to take money out of politics. It was going to take you know the parties out of politics. And I think that's happened. I think that same sort of phenomenon is across the political spectrum where our institutions are incredibly weak because they're not for both structural and psychological and market incentive reasons they're not willing to do their jobs which brings me to the supreme court ruling on the uh uh, eviction moratorium the supreme court and you guys have talked about this chapter and verse on on ao um your really excellent niche podcast um flagship you meant flagship I think uh, niche is French for <laughs> flagship, actually. Um, um, I, 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 Fake news. I, I think flagship <laughs> is French for rarefied and select. Um, anyway, so the, the the Brett Kavanaugh and the majority of the Supreme Court told the administration, you can't do this using the CDC. You gotta, if you want to have extend uh, a, a moratorium on evictions, you gotta, you gotta write a law. Congress has got to do it. And Biden said, yeah, the bulk of the scholarship says that this is not constitutional. Why he couldn't himself make a judgment on this? This was the former chair of the Judiciary Committee. And if he doesn't think it's constitutional, then he has an honor, he has a bound by oath obligation not to send something to the Supreme Court he thinks is unconstitutional or not to put into action something that's unconstitutional. So anyway, the court says to Congress and to the administration, you guys figured out, write a law. Nancy Pelosi thinks it's too hard. Joe Biden thinks it's too hard. So they do it by executive order. The Supreme Court says, we told you you couldn't do this. And so they shut it down. I don't think they told them nearly forcefully enough or angrily enough. I think the Supreme Court should have been in a Bambi versus Godzilla moment on that. But um, uh, be that as it may, the response from members of Congress was, this is outrageous. How dare the Supreme Court impose its policy preferences, yada, 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 yada. And I got pages of quotes. I had my RA give me, and it just goes on for pages of these people, how outraged they are and disappointed they are. And, you know, Bill de Blasio calling the the majority of the Supreme Court right-wing fanatics who want to kick people out into the streets. And literally, the Supreme Court decision says, you can do this, which I don't think they should be able to do, but that's a different issue. You can do this if you just write a law. But Congress doesn't want to write a law. It's sort of like when Cory Gardner ripped Jeff Sessions, your old boss, for his um, for not continuing the Obama administration's position on on marijuana enforcement. And Gardner was like, this is outrageous. I was made promises by the executive branch and you have to uphold them. And you would get the impression that Cory Gardner at the time wasn't this thing called a legislator who could have like written a law to do what he wants to do. But and so instead, we've turned Congress into a bunch of lobbyists who lobby the Supreme Court or lobby the executive branch to do their jobs for them. And then they denounce those institutions when they fail to do the thing the way Congress has the power to do it, but refuses to do it because it's too damn hard. And that's why we have so much dysfunction. That's one of the main reasons why we have so much dysfunction in our politics. And it feeds into the stuff that Sarah was talking about with the parties, because the incentive structures for all these Congress people to be pundits and not actually parliamentarians of any kind. And it makes me cross. So well, it's with also, that, Steve, let me, let me just jump. Yeah. Let me just jump in. I mean, you know, it's, it's the same incentive. It's the same incentive structure because they can go and rant about it and wave their arms and pitch a fit. But 
as long, you know, when they take steps towards solving the problem, even if Democrats in Congress would have attempted to take steps towards solving the problem in a manner I don't, don't like, and I think is deeply problematic as it relates to property rights, then they can't, then they don't have the issue. Then they can't run around and wave their arms about it. I think that contributes to this, you know, this, this broader problem that we talk about a lot on here that we're talking about specifically in this conversation that we talked about in the last segment. I mean, the, the other thing I would say about this particular episode is the extent to which property rights are sort of met with a shrug. Um, you know, I, I consider property rights sort of the first and most fundamental right, the first and most fundamental human right. All other rights, in effect, flow from property rights. Um, well, uh, well uh, how about right after the right to life, right? Like, I mean, like the right to be alive. I mean, is, I would say that, 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 that you have that right in your own property. Fair right? enough, yeah. Um, the, the, but you have Democrats in effect arguing that, um, homeowners, uh, landlords don't have the right to use their property sort of indefinitely. I mean, I think there are huge problems with the eviction moratorium in the short term, but you can understand the case for it on a, you know, on a temporary basis in the midst of a pandemic that is, uh, you know, a, a crisis of governance, of economics, of, you know, of potentially of, of life. But Democrats seem just unconcerned with property rights in general. And there's a great irony that the Biden administration, Joe Biden as president, pushed uh, for a, a, an extension of a moratorium he himself acknowledged was almost certainly not permissible by law, then made another argument to expand that in effect. And he did so at a time when he spends most, his White House and Joe Biden spend most of their time arguing that the crisis is coming to an end in terms of economics. They tout their jobs numbers all the time. So many more people are employed. So many more, more people have jobs. The economy is booming and growing. But we still have to deny landlords the, the rent that they might charge uh, because this is a momentary crisis. There's just sort of hypocrisy all around on this. And I, and I guess it shouldn't probably be the wake up call that it is, but the extent to which Democrats and I'd say even Republicans who haven't been nearly as outspoken on this as I would have hoped, just don't care about property rights, don't think about property rights is, I think, problematic as we enter this uh, weird phase of failing institutions. David, this entire podcast has been an advertisement for Advisory Opinions episode tomorrow, I feel. Uh, I, I feel exactly the same way. I'm excited about this episode. And so I'm going to save most of my bonus rant for Advisory Opinions tomorrow. Um, but a, a, a couple of points. One, one is non-legal. Okay, so um, if you, one of the big, one of the largest sort of brass tax problems we have in the entire United States of America is is a lack of affordable housing, especially in a lot of our most potent economics, uh, most potent economics uh, centers in the United States, the Bay Area, um, places like LA, New York, places where that are really driving the, are the driving engines of our economy. We have a major, huge problem with affordable housing. Well, what's about one of the best ways I can imagine to create economic disincentives for housing? It would be to deprive owners of housing of the ability to reap economic rewards from their property. I mean, what incentive is there to build new housing if you're going to be depriving people of the ability to receive an economic benefit? This is unbelievable. Look, I can imagine in a short burst of time in, an, in a disaster situation, taking an emergency measure, but we prolonging this, moving this, it's it's horrible policy apart from uh apart entirely from the fact that it was an unconstitutional policy it was the perfect storm uh one thing about steve's right to life and property i will say steve i assert a right to life even when i'm in my neighbor's property just to be just to be clear about that uh, so um and then we also have, of course, this really interesting unfolding situation in Texas that we're going to talk about where the Supreme Court so far, so far has refused to stay 
a very, very quirky abortion law in Texas that purports to ban uh, abortions very early in pregnancy, but does not make the state the enforcer of the law. Um, so in, in any any news article you're reading about this that doesn't lead with that in the opening paragraph is a it's a badly written news article because that's one of the really strange quirks of this law. It's not that the Supreme Court has said in any way, shape, or form that this is constitutional. I think one of the issues that we're facing is the court's trying to figure out what to do with this statute, which is drawn in a very, very quirky way. I don't know if the court, we've expressed our opinions, Sarah and I, about whether the court will overrule Roe. I'm not sure that this case is going to tell us one thing or the other, and Sarah's shaking her head about that as to whether this is going to be a case that will overrule Roe. So everyone freaking out on Twitter and on the op-ed pages <laughs> of all the major publications, I note that many of them fail to mention the defendant problem, or if they do, they brush it off and say they should just issue the stay and work it out later. Okay, that's not how this works. Uh, yes, the Supreme Court could just stay the law and say nothing else, but they need to know why they're staying it and how they're staying it and against whom. You have to sue against someone. And in this case, they sued against the state. So long story short, this is the Supreme Court's summer break. Um, you know, they're out and about not hearing cases. And for the third time in as many weeks, someone has come with an emergency to the Supreme Court. That's how the eviction moratorium got up there. That's how this is getting up there. And so people are complaining that the Supreme Court is doing this all under the quote unquote shadow docket when they're the ones bringing the case under the shadow docket. They could wait until someone enforced this law, tried to enforce this law, a private party who then sues someone uh, who performed an abortion. That would easily go, it wouldn't need to go to the Supreme Court. The district court would strike it down as unconstitutional under Roe and Casey. The Fifth Circuit would have to uphold the strike down under Roe and Casey. And the Supreme Court would deny cert because they don't need to. But that's not why this case is going to the Supreme Court. It's about who you can sue. It has nada to do with Roe, except that the law has gone into effect today. And so people are losing their minds. But it goes exactly, Jonah, to your point of both sides using the Supreme Court as their political battering ram against the other side and leaving the Supreme Court holding the bag. So if the Supreme Court doesn't do what you want, you have someone to beat up on, someone to blame, and a way to raise money on it. Because now you can say, see, it's those people over there. They are the enemy. Let's go get them. And that's absolutely what the left is doing. And I, I think it's uh, hilarious now to see the right do that when they have six appointees on the court. But my God, do you see it? Plenty as the Supreme Court doesn't do exactly what they want. And no, I don't think they'll overturn Roe this fall when they hear the Dobbs case. And we will see plenty of it then as well, including more calls for the end of legal conservatism as we know it. Can I ask one quick question on this stuff for the legal people? Um, so my understanding from the stuff I read up on this, because I wrote my column about it, is that um, the assumption is, is that Roberts switched sides so that he could write, because it's an unsigned ru uh, ruling, so that he could write it because the chief justice gets to write it if he's with the majority in order to prevent Kavanaugh from ripping the administration a new one for taking advantage of his generosity with his last ruling. Um, the question I have, so the question is like, A, do you think that's true? And B, why wouldn't Justice Roberts want to, as a, as a matter of protecting the prerogatives of the court, want to say, hey, don't play these games with us. It's not going to work out well. Do your job. And I guess, see, I just, in, in case I have, can't abuse the privilege, um, Justice Breyer's dissent to me was actually terrifying because he basically was saying that, <laughs> that short of Congress explicitly telling the executive branch, you can't do something, the presumption is they can get away with it. They can do it. Um, and that basically the CDC director um, is, is, you know, the king of the United States of America, um, unless Congress preemptively precluded it. Um, this makes me very much want Republican judges on the court of, the, of this stripe going forward. Anyway, 
any one of those three things, if you guys could just answer for me informationally, that would be great. I don't think Kavanaugh or Roberts have the temperament to do what you want them to do in terms of what they could have written in the opinion, uh, you know, with some tongue wagging. Is that <laughs> tail wagging? Tongue does make you miss Scalia. <laughs> Uh, yeah, neither of them are Justice oh, Scalia. Oh, there are justices who would do it. <laughs> uh, I think it came up on an emergency basis. You don't have a lot of time to write these. We have plenty of history of unsigned opinions at the court. Um, so I, I just wasn't overly like, I don't, I think all of the shenanigans people are guessing about, uh, probably not is my guess. Certainly not that he took it away from Kavanaugh so that it would be less uh, aggressive. I, I don't believe, I don't buy into that. I, I agree with that. And I just, you know, to, to note, though, that there are justices who can be spicy um, on the among the GOP nominated six. And I'm speaking of one Justice Alito, who has been called spicy many times on our podcast. But, yeah, I agree with Sarah that the that's not really the, t- the judicial temperament of Roberts or Kavanaugh, for that matter. Um, yeah. And and the, the Breyer opinion, I mean. Look, I mean, th- this is this. There are reasons why, and and Breyer and and Breyer has written some opinions that I've actually kind of liked. I mean, we, we angry cheerleader, for example, um, was a Breyer opinion, but this this is bad Breyer. <laughs> this was bad, bad Breyer. And again, I just keep going back to uh, putting the legal merits aside for the moment. This is just such bad policy. It is such bad policy. And and look, the progressive world's got to reckon with a lot of the housing problems it has in its own backyard. Um, this is a big problem in some of America's most progressive areas is how difficult it is for a, a, fam- a gainfully employed family to even, le- uh, to even live in a community is a remarkable problem in, in some parts of America. And I can't think of a, of a policy better calculated to make that worse. And by the way, it means that they uh, are basically not taking any refugees from Afghanistan. They There's all this big talk about how like, please send them to California. And they're like, we can't, you don't have affordable housing. Uh, so, you know. Uh, all right, that'll do us for today. Fun ending is that we are starting up a dispatch fantasy football league. So think about whose horse you want to back. Will it be David French, who only watches college football? Jonah Goldberg, who may or may not be able to name multiple (laughs) football teams? Steve Hayes, who is like the hare and the tortoise and the hare when it comes to fantasy football? I mean, a lot of talk, a lot of racing around. Or me, the tortoise, who y'all are going to underestimate and who is going to win the race. That's... (laughs) That's the question for listeners to think about. I can name most teams, by the way. I can't name most players. I mean, I can name all the teams probably, but I can't like the players now. Well, that's how fantasy works, Jonah. Just pick the teams. Yeah. You'll be fine. Yeah. No, but she took a shot at me saying I couldn't even name the teams. I can name the teams. I That much I remember, but like the QBs, no, probably not. So. All right. That'll do us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. Are we not going to see David for the whole podcast? Is that the plan? I guess not. Oh, what happened to me? Your video is not, not on. Not on. Oh, is it Hi. now? Hi. Yeah. yeah. Hi, David. That's bad. Hi. Okay. We missed we you. We missed you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>